doggone it. Let's pray. Though we don't deserve any of this. You remind us time and again that your cross made provision for us. That your love, which you had for the world, for enemies, those alienated and hostile towards you, those dead and the trespasses and sins, those shaking their fist at heaven, you proved your love for us. And the jury is not out on that. That's been decided, and it was decided on the cross. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We're grateful, Lord, that we can sing today about being forgiven because of your great love. We pray that as we look at your word today, Lord, that you would make it alive for us. Help us to understand what it is that you've given us in Christ. And in light of your great mercy, Lord, live as living sacrifices for all that you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If, uh, if you have a Bible with you, turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. We will start there and go through verse 21. Mike, make a note that we need... Oh, no, never mind. We got it. We're good. Thanks. Sorry about that. I'll try not to make that happen again. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, several years ago, many of you, even no matter what your favorite team happens to be, you'll be able to identify with this, I think, most of you. Several years ago, my wife and I, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but we went with her brother and uh, his wife, girlfriend, I don't know where they were. We went down to Baton Rouge to go to an Alabama football game, Alabama versus LSU. On the way, we were driving an old uh, Astro van, and it was, uh, we, were, we were not entirely confident that we would get both there and back in it, but we were going, and we wanted to go to the game, and I had tickets in my hand, so whether, I mean, I was going to give it a shot, so we did. Drove from here all the way clean to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, most of the way to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We had to actually stop off in some town that I'm still not even sure where we stopped, but it turns out, as we made a couple of phone calls, that Dana Lynn had some family that lived around there. Cousin Mark. We stopped at Cousin Mark's house, and we got to spend the night with Cousin Mark, completely and utterly against our will. And Cousin Mark was one of those people who grew up in that, well, he didn't necessarily grow up in that area necessarily, but he was one of those people who was a, can I say it, a rabid LSU fan. Rabid LSU fan. And part of his ritual every night before the games was he'd kind of just to kind of pump him up and get him all excited and whatnot. He had a CD with the band music on it. Like they've got the band, you know, they kind of go out into the field and, and when the band goes out in the middle of the field, they look at this one side and they go, dun, 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 and then the people freak out and go, hey, and then they go the other way, dun, 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 and you're supposed to, so cousin Mark, for whatever reason, thought that this would really get us going. Alabama fans from Tuscaloosa going to LSU to go and watch a football game where we hope that dun, 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 uh, turned into, oh man, maybe next year. That's what we hope for. And so here we are sitting in the living room, 
trying to, well, honestly, we were out of our element anyway. I knew I was going to be sleeping, basically, I was going to be sleeping on a couch in somebody's living room, far away from where we had planned on staying, and it wasn't my plan, but here we are, completely out of sorts, away from home, not in a place where I wanted to be, and he wanted me to be excited about LSU band music. I got to be honest, I tried. I tried because I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to show love and affection for Cousin Mark, but I, I Y'all are catching that, right, Cousin Mark? That's okay. I'm trying real hard. But he, he, he just could not figure out why we weren't so excited. Because whenever he played that music, he got so excited, right? Whenever he turned on that music, his blood started pumping, and he was just, he was just enlivened and ready, and he, just, he thought that the same thing would happen to us. But i got to be honest with you. There were a few times in my life when I could have cared less about the music that was coming out of a CD player. And to be, to be fair, no matter, how much, no matter how he had presented it to us, in that situation, it would have been difficult for me to have really caught on, latched on, and, and loved what he was loving because of the situation we were in. By our nature, when we are born into the world, the way that God tells us we're born into the world, we have hearts that are not bent to love God. It's like we come into the world and we can see that there's something to it. There's something to the Psalm 19 itself says that the, the heavens themselves declare the very glory of God to us. And yet when we see it, the only thing that the Bible tells us that we can see is his eternal power and his divine nature. And by our very nature, according to Romans chapter 1, in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We don't listen to what God says. And the reason why, according to John chapter 3, is that we do not love the things of God. We are born into a situation where God plays for us the worship music of all creation. And we stand there and see it and we're like, and? Because we do not understand. Because we are born with hearts that are formed not to love the things of God, but to love the things of this world. And we do a great job at that. Because as soon as the world starts playing their music, well, I tell you, we are happy to strike up a tune and start dancing around. Because that's what we love. Because that's how we're bent. Because that's how we're born. Because that's who we are. Into that world, John 3.16 speaks grace truth because of a God who loves most of the time when we read this passage or think about this passage or when even times when people would talk about this passage most of the time we want to talk about and think about the fact that God loves us and there's been songs that have been written lots of songs that have been written there's one recent relatively recent song that was written that that it was help me see help me know help me to believe that I am someone worth dying for and I'll just, if that's what you get out of John 3.16, let's read it at least one more time. Because that's not what God says. He says, despite the fact that you and I are bent away from him, we are bent, we're bent born to hate everything about him. Everything about his revelation, everything about his word, everything about his creation, everything about his character, everything about God. Despite the fact that we hate God with every fiber of our being, he continues to play that song. And he continues to reach out to us. And he continues to call us to himself and say, come to me. I love you. 
Come to me and you will find rest. Come to me and you will find peace. Come to me and you will find forgiveness. Why? John chapter three, verse 16. John chapter three, verse 16. We're gonna read 16 all the way through 21, so it should be on the screen. John chapter three, verse 16 to 21. For God, oh, there it is, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the living God. God, this is the God who loved the world by sending his only son to be its only savior. And because of that, this God deserves praise and glory and honor and worship for being the God who loves like he does. My goal today is to show you a text that you've already known. You knew perfectly well before you came in here. You've read it, you memorized it, you think about it, you've probably heard countless sermons and messages and devotionals on it. In fact, I would almost bet you that if you ever had to do a devotional at the drop of a hat, John 3.16 is one of the first ones you can pull out because it's so straightforward and simple. But let's look again at a well-known text of Scripture. Let's just keep it on the text and we'll go back and forth on the text. Jason, thank you. I've got three things that I want to draw out of this for us to consider about the person of God, God the lover who draws us to himself, shows us his love so that he can receive the praise and the glory and the honor that he rightly deserves for the way that he loves us. First, if we're looking at verse 16, consider the infinite cost that God paid. You see in verse 16 that God so loved the world. Now, you see in the first part of that, so love the world that. He, there's two words there to, to sort of heighten this love, heighten the, the, the point to it. Look at, look at how much God loved, and in this way, God showed and proved his love for the world. The whole world, not just any one particular people. To a Jew, this would have been rather offensive. To a Jew who thought that as long as I follow the ways of Yahweh, I follow according to the law, I am a, a member of the people of God, then I'm going to be loved. But to those who are outside of God, those who are unrighteous and do not listen to what it is that God says, they don't, they don't care about his word. They don't care about his truth. They don't care about his people. They don't care about making the sacrifices or doing the things that God has called them to do. They don't care about that. For those people, they would have thought God hated them we read a couple of times in psalms one in chapters five verse five and six the psalmist says the the boastful shall not stand before your eyes for you hate all evildoers you destroy those who speak lies the lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man this is the kind of person that the lord he says in psalm five and five and six 
abhors, hates. Or maybe Psalm 11, verse 5, where he says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so the Jew would have looked at that and they would have said, well, that means the people who don't follow Yahweh the way that we do. Those who are outside of the covenant of God, who don't care about the laws of God, don't care about the ways of God, don't care about pleasing God, but only care about themselves. Those who are, by virtue of their ethnicity, not the living and breathing children of Abraham, those would be the ones that God hates. And of course, from the perspective of the whole Bible and the rest of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we know that this verse and other verses like them reveal to us the heart of a God who does not only love those who listen to and follow him. God loves those who hate him. Paul says in Romans 3.9 that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. They are, even the Gentiles, under sin. The Jews, the Greeks, all, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, men, women, everyone, under sin, and therefore not righteous. But God, he knows, according to the word of God, God is in his holiness, his perfect holiness, in settled wrath against those who rebel against his rule. He has to be. God has wrath, whereas wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness because these men and women have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And in the end, those who finally, completely, ultimately rebel against the rule of Creator God and do not repent and pray to Him for mercy because of the sacrifice of Jesus are going to taste the bitterness of the cup of God's wrath themselves. Because of their own sin. Not because of the sin of their fathers. Not because primarily the sin of Adam. But because they sin. We sin. You sin. I sin. We pay in hell for our own sin. Outside of Christ. Because we have all fallen short of God's perfect holy glory. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You know this. We learn this is the second verse that we learn. John 3.16. Then we start learning the Romans road. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But simply because God pours out his wrath on people, mankind, sinners, unrepentant sinners, it does not mean that God somehow enjoys that. The scriptures reveal a God, yes, who does pour out his wrath on sinners who are unrepentant. But the prophet Ezekiel pronounces judgment on the wicked. When he does so, he pronounces this judgment because of their wickedness And we hear the heart of God in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 and 32, where he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And would I not rather that he should turn from his evil way and live? In 32 he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. God's heart is in anguish over those who continue in their rebellion and are running towards condemnation. Why? Because even though God, for the sake of His holiness, remains in a holy, wrathful, settled opposition against all sin, God loves the whole world. Saved and unsaved. Wicked. Christian. Rebel. Follower. God loves sinners more than you do. And there's not a single one 
that he does not love. And so we see here, God loves the whole world. The world. Every single creature. Every human being made in his image whom he knit together in their mother's womb by his own hand. Remember that for Jesus to speak of love for the world, he's introducing a facet of theology that the Jews would have completely not understood. They wouldn't have gotten that. Because the gospel message about Jesus was supposed to spread not just to Jerusalem and Judea, but even to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Not just for the Jewish people, not just for those who are the children of Abraham, because Jesus said, you remember, don't get so hyped up about the fact that you're the children of Abraham. God's actually able to take these rocks and make children of Abraham out of them. He doesn't care about your ethnic background. God doesn't care about the, the color of your skin or the, the, who your parents were or where, where you came from. He doesn't care. He loves the world. Every single person in the world. If by virtue of this moment you happen to be breathing, God loves you. And he reveals that by sending his son to die on the cross while you and I and every single other person who's ever lived were in settled opposition and rebellion to him. I've sat with more than one mother who has raised a child from birth all the way through adulthood, gone away from the Lord. It got to the point where they finally started making their own decisions and they completely and utterly turned their back on the Lord. They, they used to go to church. They used to care about the things of God. They were baptized. Maybe they were added to the role when they were at VBS or something. You as a parent, you've, you've spent all this time and effort and energy praying with them, helping them memorize scripture, taking them to church, sacrificing other things that you could have done to get them to where they need to go because you know they're supposed to be here and you know that they need to hear about Jesus and you've been faithful to proclaim the gospel message to them in your own home. And yet at the end, what happens? God makes no promises that our children are gonna to come to faith. At the end of the day, God makes no promises that our children are going to come to faith. That proverb where he says, if you raise up a child in the way he should go, then when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs are not promises, friends. Proverbs are general axioms that are generally true. God makes no promise that if you bring a child to church that he's going to be a Christian or she. And so it hurts. It hurts so much because your heart is bound up in their future and in their present and you know that if they would but listen and but turn to Jesus and, and, ex, and ex, they get to experience the peace and the joy and the love and the hope that comes from knowing God in Christ. You know this and you know that that, that would give them a future, a new home, a, a place that's better than where they're going to head. You know this. You want it more than anything and so you, you weep and your heart is broken because they're in rebellion against the Lord. And all you did was bear them for nine months to birth and then dedicate a few decades of your life to them. Do you not think that the God who knit them together in your womb loves them more than you do? Do you not think that the God who knew their name before you even knew they would be conceived knew who they would become, knew the way that their personality would particularly reflect the glory of God, knew everything about them, all their thoughts, knew the number of hairs on their head. Do you not think that that God loves them far more than you do? And do you not think that as he holds out his hand to them and he calls them to come, that his heart is not more broken than yours is? 
Our heart is broken, and I'm not trying to downplay that, but God loves even those who reject him. God loves the world. And a heart that's been brought to love, brought to life by this kind of love is going to even love those who don't love you back. God even loves his enemies. You and I have a, a very easy time making categories of people that we don't particularly care for. Just honest, right? If we're being just dead level honest, we don't have a problem with that. I could, I could stay away from this person. This is a small, small dose individual. I don't have to do this. I can kind of avoid this. And some of them maybe even in your own family. But a heart that's been brought to life by God's love for the world is going to have a love that's similar to, not perfect, but similar to the love that God has for the world. God so loved the world. And so do all who are formed and informed by God's love for the world. Even sinners, even rebels, even enemies. But he loved the world in this way. By sending his only son. He loved the world by sending his only son. Jesus is God's one and only son. His special, unique son. He's the unique son of God who in eternity past, he worked together with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come up with a plan to redeem those who, all who would call upon the name of the Lord. Every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single one of them. And so God, in eternity past, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit worked together to make up, come up with the plan whereby the Son would go, live, and die on the cross, be raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, so that every single person who was going to call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Not a single one of them will be lost. Not one. That's why he came. God sent his Son into the world. This is how he proved his love for us. This is how God showed his love to us. The biblical definition of love, church, is exemplified in sacrifice. The world would love to think of God. They'd like say, well, God is love. And then they define love as making much of me or, or however else they want to define love. And so they think, well, if you love me, you will affirm whatever I think is right. Whether I, I want to be boys or girls, or whether I want to have this orientation or that orientation, or whether I want to sin, or whether I want to, we have lines that God has drawn for us, and we can't bend them, because we didn't draw them. God did. Love is not defined by accepting whatever a person thinks happens to be good or right for them. In fact, <laughs> I have a three-year-old. <laughs> if I love Alistair, I'm going to do the very opposite of letting him do whatever he thinks he wants to do at any given moment. Because if he wants to do whatever he wants to do, in the last 24 hours, he would have run out into the street, into oncoming traffic, at least twice. Okay? Uh, he would have wanted to climb up on our still being constructed treehouse before the rails are up there and do his little dance. Right? Not a thing he can do. Right? What he wants is to take toys with batteries with him into the bathtub. Does that sound like something I should let him do? No. If I give him what he wants in various and sundry ways, it will kill him. I know that. I'm his father. If I love my son, I'm going to do whatever I must do. I'm going to sacrifice whatever it costs so that he doesn't get what he wants. If I love him, I'm going to stand in the gap to keep him from what I know will destroy him. 
because that's the way that God loves his children. That's the way that God has shown his love for the world, the way that God has shown his love for you. He loved you so much that when you wanted nothing to do with him, God stood in the gap and held out his hand and said, come. When you wanted to be his enemy, when you wanted to run the other way, you were happy going a thousand miles an hour towards hell, happy about it. God did what was necessary to stand in the gap, to arrest you and to show you his love so that you would not get what you most want. Because what you most want, apart from Christ, will destroy you. What you most desire, apart from Christ, is going to eternally destroy you. But in Christ, you've been given something that's way better than that. And not even just way better, but the very best. God has proven his love for us by sending his only son to be crushed, to be crushed by his wrath that you and I deserved while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies and in rebellion against him. Pastor Kevin read this just a few moments ago. Romans chapter five, verse six. Verse eight is the one that we love, right? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's good memory verse. Stick it on your wall, put it in your, on your car dashboard, fantastic. But look down to verse 10. He says, if while we were enemies, we were still reconciled to God by the death of his son. Enemies. We were God's enemies. Enemies. He sent Jesus to ransom us. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Peter reminds us that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that without a, of a lamb without blemish or spot. The precious blood of Jesus Christ is what has been sacrificed so that you could be free. We misunderstand if we think that this was somehow a good deal. Do you think... God's blood is somehow limited in its ability to save? Is God's precious blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, not infinite in its value? Is it not of such great and infinite value that it's worth every single person who will ever be saved and it is sufficient to save any and all who would come. Sufficient to save. One drop of the blood of the holy God is enough to save the entire world. Blood that he has shed. The cost was the precious son of God to save completely to the uttermost. Every single one who will call upon his name. Every single one without exception. And every single one of us lived or still lives in absolute rebellion against the Lord. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So that... Consider second. So first consider the infinite cost of the Son of God. Second consider the, those justly condemned. Those whom God pursued. He says in verse 18, look at your text again. It's been a while since I asked you to do that. Look at your text again. Those who were justly condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why are they condemned already? 
I'll, I'll say something that's probably a little unpopular. There is a wrong way to read verse 18. I know you want to say, well, you've got an opinion and I've got an opinion. Everybody can have an opinion. No, no. There's a wrong way to read verse 18. I've got a friend who once said, that, well, why do people go, why do people go to hell? Well, John, 1 John 3.18 says that it's because they have not believed in the, son, the name of the Son of God. They're going to hell. The only reason that they go to hell is because they've not believed in Jesus. And that's just not what the text says. The reason why is because he says that they're condemned already. So the already comes before the rejection of Christ. So are they or are they not already condemned before Jesus comes? Yes. They stand in condemnation when the gospel comes. So yes, rejecting Jesus, make no mistake, is a sin and is wrong and people will be condemned for it. But people do not go to hell solely because they've rejected Jesus. Because what about all the rest of the people who've never heard of Jesus? First Romans chapter 1 tells me that they've rejected the, the truth and the rule of God by their unrighteousness because their unrighteousness, in their own unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And they've never even heard about Jesus. So, you know, if that's true, that they're only going to hell because they reject Jesus, then we better pull back all of our missionaries now because that's giving them an opportunity to reject. But, of course, that's ridiculous. And that's absolutely not what verse 18 says because it says they're condemned already. Before the gospel comes, they are condemned. They stand condemned before the gospel comes. Now, rejecting Christ complicates their condemnation, but they're condemned already before they hear the gospel. They are already condemned. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7 says that we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray by various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another. That's before we heard of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says that you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. That's before you heard about Jesus. All of that condemned already unless you are attached to Jesus in faith. See that the actual point of verse 18 is that the only ones who are saved are those who do trust in Jesus Christ. You're condemned already because the only ones who will be saved are those who have attached themselves to Jesus in faith. You're already condemned. Here's the message of faith. Here's the message of the gospel. Respond and be saved from the coming wrath. The people's problem, verse 19 and 20, is one of worship. I don't have as much time to spend on this as I would like, but the problem in verse 19 and verse 20 is that they have a love problem. This is what I was talking about at the very beginning. They loved what? The darkness. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They did wicked things. They hated the light. They didn't want what they were doing to be exposed, so they continued in their wickedness and evil, and they stayed in the darkness. Again, you don't have to teach a child to hide something behind their back. Why? They do it by nature. If they know they have something that they're not supposed to have, if they've broken something that they're not supposed to have touched in the first place, they hide it. Why? Because it's wicked and they know that if it's brought into the light, they're going to be punished for it. We're all like that. We get a little more sophisticated in our ways of hiding it. But we're all the same. The world already stands in condemnation before God. The coming of Christ just came to further reveal what was already 
there. And these are the people that God has chased after. He's pursued us even though we didn't want him. We weren't looking for him. And he, we would have rather him left us alone to do what we wanted to keep on doing. We were enemies, ungodly, still sinners, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, dead in our trespasses and, in the, and living by our flesh. And while these things were true, God so loved you. And he still does. And he calls you to himself saying, do you want to be free? Believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you want to be free? Repent and trust in Jesus. Do you want to have hope? Do you want to have eternal life? Do you want to not perish but have everlasting life? Believe on the Son. Believe on the Son. The offer is free. The offer is real. And God, if you are breathing, is pursuing you. Consider last his gracious call. Whoever believes in Jesus, verse 16 and verse 18 and verse 21, whoever believes in Jesus, and verse 21 is the, the one that's a little bit different. Look at Whoever does what is true, I'm taking that phrase to mean that doing what is true means following after the words of Jesus who is the truth. So doing what is true is a, is a way of saying follow the words and the works of Jesus. Right? Doing what is true is listening to Jesus, following him in the gospel. He says that there's hope for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. He says, verse 16, they will not perish. There's people who want to say, well, perish may mean that they're just destroyed. They're going to be annihilated. They die and then they burn up and that's all there is to it. How long is eternal life? Eternal? You set eternal life right next to perish. That, that doesn't make sense linguistically. If John knows what he's doing, and I would argue that he does, he's, he's arguing in parallel here. So he's, this is eternal life, and this is eternal destruction. These are, it's not the only place that we see this in the text of Scripture, but I would be very, very much concerned about someone who just wants to say, well, that means that he's perishing, he's died, he's done. How long is this eternal life? It's eternal. So also is the condemnation. But those who will trust in Christ will not be condemned, they will not perish, they will come into the light, verse 21, and why do they do this? Verse 21, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Because Jesus didn't come to condemn. Jesus came to be the world's only Savior. Those who believe will not perish. They will not be ultimately condemned. God sent Jesus. He was pleased to crush him so that the world would have a Savior. Jesus died by his blood. Romans chapter, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. By his blood he has ransomed a people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation, and he's made them a kingdom of priests that they shall reign on the earth. Christ will have the prize for which he died. And those who trust in Christ need not fear that their sins are too great because his sacrifice is sufficient to cover over your sins. But here's the call. Believe in Jesus and have life. Continue where you are and you will remain in condemnation. For you are already condemned. You stand condemned outside of Christ. You say, well, I don't deserve Christ. And you're right. There's not going to be a single person in heaven who thinks they belong there. Not one. If you think you belong there, then by virtue of that statement, you don't understand. No one belongs there except for God. 
God didn't send his world, his Jesus into the world to bring it under further condemnation. He sent Jesus so that every single person who calls upon his name would ultimately be saved. All who call upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And so we sing songs like, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. I cling to Christ, and I marvel at the cost that Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God, bought by such love. My life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. We sing this, the power of the cross, the Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. We sing, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, was He, full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. We sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me, who caused His pain? For me, who Him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And we sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You who have escaped the judgment of the wrath of God will receive mercy because of the wonderful exchange of your sins for Christ's righteousness through faith in him. But I want to warn you, as much as this passage speaks about the love of God for the world, it does speak about the love of God for the world. God loves the world. He loves sinners. He loves rebels. He's proven his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This passage is not about you. This passage is about the God who so loved the world. I know that because you get to the end of verse 21. Those who truly do the truth, they come into the light. Not so that the world could see how amazing they are, but they come into the light so that the world can see that their works have been done in God. Because you see, this whole thing, God loving the world, drawing people to himself, saving people who were rebels, angry, hostile enemies, serves as a song that will exist for all eternity because he ransomed a people who weren't seeking him. He saved them, cleansed them, made them his own. That's the song. We're not singing about us. We sing about him. There's a thousand different responses. One of them is to trust in Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, his arms are extended to you today and he says repent and believe if you would but believe come to me you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved if you want to know more about that I'll be up here I'll also be back there after the service you can find Pastor Kevin you can find Pastor Mike you can find your Sunday school teachers honestly just find a Christian There's a, every Christian in this room would love to lead somebody to Jesus today respond if you're hearing this, you're already a Christian. You knew this perfectly well before you sat down. Would you, 
sing a song of praise to Jesus today for saving you, despite the fact that you had no business being here. None of us do. Let's pray.